0: It's Tuesday, February 15th, 2022, the 391st Day of Dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. So yesterday, we were discussing all of the societal decline on display as a result of our decadence that permeated every single bit of the Super Bowl broadcast, aside from mostly... The game itself. And I forgot to mention a few things. And I want to talk about those things and then expand on some of the stuff I was talking about yesterday. So one of the things that I was going to mention was that there was a commercial for the company Salesforce, and they were basically advertising how great their company was because they were going to save Earth from the sun. They were going to save the planet. That's what all of the ads always take into account. Oh, well, we're going to do this because it's sustainable, which means global communism. We're going to fix climate change, which means the implementation of global communism. They have a bunch of routes into global communism and a bunch of ways to make people feel like the whole world is going to end unless they implement global communism. And I just want to touch on Salesforce a bit because I made fun of it in a text chain to a friend of mine And he was like, I don't know anything about Salesforce. And so I just went to their Wikipedia to grab some stuff. And it's kind of amazing, even in Wikipedia, which I don't consider a a trusted source or b on our side in any way. But they still have this stuff up there about Salesforce. If you go down to like the criticisms or controversy section, I can't remember what it was called. But they had two little entries that caught my eye. One was tax avoidance. In December 2019, the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy found that Salesforce was one of 91 companies who, quote, paid an effective federal tax rate of zero percent or less in 2018 as a result of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. So, you know, it was Trump's fault. Their findings were published in a report based on 379 Fortune 500 companies that declared a profit in 2018. And then there was this. In March 2019, Salesforce faced a lawsuit by 50 anonymous women claiming to be victims and survivors of sex trafficking, abuse and rape, which alleges the company profited from and knowingly facilitated sex trafficking on the website backpage.com, defunct since April 2018. The lawsuit also pointed out that Salesforce was publicly promoting an anti-human trafficking campaign at the time of its work with Backpage. And we're going to be finding out over the next few months or maybe the next couple of years that a lot of these really high-level companies are in some way involved with human trafficking. It is not a conspiracy theory. It just isn't. It just is true. Okay. And I know that people don't like to believe that sort of thing. They think it's not possible but it is possible. And it's not like each and every one of these companies is running their own ring. They just provide some sort of technological infrastructure for these human trafficking rings and operations to continue. And then if you keep going with Salesforce, you can find out that the man at Salesforce is Mark Benioff. And if you look on Wikipedia, you can Check out his social activist platforms. Benioff has said that businesses are the greatest platforms for change in the world. He follows World Economic Forum founder Klaus Schwab's stakeholder approach to leadership, which says that leaders should serve not only their shareholders, but all stakeholders, including customers, employees, partners, communities, and the environment, to make the world a better place. And I'm sure you're all thrilled to find out that the World Economic Forum's goal is, in fact, to make the world a better place for the people in the World Economic Forum who want less normal people and all of those normal people to be slaves forever. But he's been recognized as one of the world's top philanthropists. He donates to children's hospitals and homeless housing projects and environmental initiatives. He was named as one of the alliance partners of Prince William's Earthshot Prize to find environmental solutions. He's a hero. He is down for all of the global communist causes. And that is why you can't insult the man. He's just basically a perfect human. He's rich beyond all imagination, has tons and tons of power, And rather than just going on vacation and enjoying his life and starting a family and having many children, like a selfish person, he's out there using his money to try to shape the world in his own image and Klaus Schwab's image. And we all must thank him for that. So Salesforce is going to save the world. Jim Carrey is going to teach you how great it is to have everything be fully wireless so that we can implement the Internet of Things and the Internet of Bodies. We don't need all those silly cables anymore and something with Dr. Evil. So I'm thinking about the fact that ABC is owned by Disney, right? CBS Viacom, huge corporation. The New York Times is partly owned by one of the world's most legendary drug kingpins with ties to the cartel, Carlos Slim. Who may well have his own trafficking project going on at Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport with something they call the Sky Bridge. Maybe something to look into. The Washington Post is owned by Amazon. NBC News used to be owned by General Electric. I think they might still have a part of that, but now they're Comcast. CNN might as well be owned by the CIA. MSNBC might as well be owned by the FBI. And all of these companies are producing what we refer to as the news, right? But these massive corporations and corporate conglomerates control far more than just their media enterprises underneath their bigger corporate banner or personal banner for some of them. And what do these corporations do when they want to sell products or ideas? Well, they find emotional trigger points and then advertise To the public on television, trying to create brand awareness, trying to create brand loyalty, trying to create deficits that you imagine you must fill through the acquisition of material goods you don't need. And I'm not saying anything groundbreaking here. I know that all these things have been talked about before, but we need to start thinking of the news in the same way. All right. Let's just take Disney and ABC News, for instance, okay, why would a company like Disney want to own a news organization? And I think that the answer is they are advertising a world they want to exist to improve their ability to grow their business and their societal footprint. So when you're watching ABC News, Maybe the most sensible way to think of what George Stephanopoulos is doing is that he is advertising the world that Disney wants, the world where their money and power and influence are increased. And we know that's true for the rest of the news stations as well. And we can imagine that they all have slightly different motivations For why they might be covering a story one way or another. It seems to me that the primary motivation for all of them is to keep people addicted to the central narrative. But within that, there are variations. So I'm thinking about that. And this article pops up from a website called theconversation.com. This is from a few years ago. This article is from May 10th, 2017. And the authors, just because you're not familiar with the website, here are the authors. It lists them on the side. Uh, Jan Fichtner, a postdoctoral researcher in political science from the University of Amsterdam. Uh, Elka Heemskerk, associate professor of political science at the University of Amsterdam and Javier Garcia Bernardo, a PhD candidate at the University of Amsterdam. So these are all European academics, all right? They're not just some schmuck on his computer typing like me, for instance. These are people whose credentials have been approved by the system. These three firms own corporate America. That's the headline. Now, if you were to hear that headline about Nicaragua or Somalia or the Philippines or some small country in Central Europe, you would immediately think, oh, man, that's weird. Just a few corporations own everything. That must be awful for those people. Thank goodness we have free market capitalism in America and not communism and not some sort of fascist state where three corporations basically own everything and get to tell the government what to do. A fundamental change is underway in stock market investing and the spin-off effects are poised to dramatically impact corporate America. In the past, individuals and in large institutions mostly invested in actively managed mutual funds such as Fidelity, in which fund managers pick stocks with the aim of beating the market. But since the financial crisis of 2008, investors have shifted to index funds, which replicate established stock indices such as the S&P 500. The magnitude of the change is astounding. From 2007 to 2016, actively managed funds have recorded outflows of roughly twelve hundred billion dollars, which is one point two trillion, while index funds had inflows of over one point four trillion dollars in the first quarter of twenty seventeen index funds brought in more than two hundred billion dollars, the highest quarterly value on record. This shift, arguably the biggest investment swing in history, is due in large part to index funds much lower costs. Actively managed funds analyze the market and their managers are paid well for their labor, but the vast majority are not able to consistently beat the index. So why pay 1% to 2% in fees every year for active funds when index funds cost a tenth of that and deliver the same performance? Some observers have lauded this development as the democratization of investing because it has significantly lowered investor expenses. But other impacts of this seismic shift are far from democratizing. One crucial difference between the active fund and the index fund industries is that the former is fragmented, consisting of hundreds of different asset managers, both small and large. The fast-growing index sector, on the other hand, is highly concentrated. It is dominated by just three giant American asset managers, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, what we call the big three. Lower fees aside, the rise of index funds has entailed a massive concentration of corporate ownership. Together, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street have nearly $11 trillion in assets under management. That's more than all sovereign wealth funds combined and over three times the global hedge fund industry. In a recently published paper, Our CorpNet research project comprehensively mapped the ownership of the big three. We found that the big three taken together have become the largest shareholder in 40% of all publicly listed firms in the United States. 40% of all publicly listed firms in the United States, the largest shareholder is either State Street, Vanguard, or BlackRock. In 2016, these 1,600 American firms had combined revenues of about $9.1 trillion, a market capitalization of more than $17 trillion, and employed more than 23.5 million people. In the S&P 500, the benchmark index of America's largest corporations, the situation is even more extreme. Together, the big three are the largest single shareholder in almost 90% of S&P 500 firms including Apple, Microsoft, ExxonMobil, General Electric, and Coca-Cola. This is the index in which most people invest. With corporate ownership comes shareholder power. BlackRock recently argued that legally it was not the, quote, owner of the shares it holds, but rather acts as a kind of custodian for their investors. That's a technicality for lawyers to sort. What is undeniable is that the big three do exert the voting rights attached to these shares. Therefore, they have to be perceived as de facto owners by corporate executives. These companies have, in fact, publicly declared that they seek to exert influence. William McNabb, chairman and CEO of Vanguard, said in 2015 that, in the past, some have mistakenly assumed that our predominantly passive management style suggests a passive attitude with respect to corporate governance. Nothing could be further from the truth. When we analyzed the voting behavior of the big three, we found that they coordinated through centralized corporate governance departments. This requires significant efforts because technically the shares are held by many different individual funds. Hence, just three companies wield an enormous potential power over corporate America. Interestingly, though, we found that the big three vote for management in about 90 percent of all votes at annual general meetings, while mostly voting against proposals sponsored by shareholders, such as calls for independent board chairman. One interpretation is that BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street are reluctant to exert their power over corporate America. Others question whether the big three really want this voting power as they primarily seek to minimize costs. What are the future consequences of the big three's unprecedented common ownership position? Research is still nascent, but some economists are already arguing that this concentration of shareholder power could have negative effects on competition. And remember, this article is almost five years old. Over the past decade, numerous U.S. industries have become dominated by only a handful of companies from aviation to banking. The big three, seen together, are virtually always the largest shareholder in the few competitors that remain in these sectors. This is the case for American Airlines, Delta, and United Continental, as it is for the banks JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and Citigroup. All of these corporations are part of the S&P 500, the index in which most people invest. Their CEOs are likely well aware that the big three are the firm's dominant shareholder and would take that into account when making decisions. So arguably, airlines have less incentive to lower prices because doing so would reduce overall returns for the big three, their common owner. In this way, the big three may be exerting a kind of emergent structural power over much of corporate America, whether or not they sought to. The big three have accumulated extraordinary shareholder power, and they continue to do so. Index funds are a business of scale, which means that at this point, competitors will find it very difficult to gain market shares. In many respects, the index fund boom is turning BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street into something resembling low cost public utilities with a quasi monopolistic position. Facing such a concentration of ownership and thus potential power, we can expect demands for increased regulatory scrutiny of corporate America's new de facto permanent governing board to increase in the coming years. And so, circling back to the Super Bowl commercials. What is being advertised to you when you are watching commercials? What is being advertised to you when you are watching the news? The thing being advertised is a future world that these people want to put in place. This is the globalist world order. And the globalist world order is, in fact, a global communist order. Okay, Klaus Schwab describes this stuff well enough for anyone to read. The hang up seems to be that people don't want to call it communism. They don't want to call it fascism, despite the fact that this is definitionally what it is. And yet people reject that. And they say, well, the state has not seized the means of production because they imagine that all of these little companies are just their own separate entities doing whatever is best for them for their own profits. And you know, some of them are just small businesses owned by families in your little town trying to make a nice life for themselves and their families while serving the community. But that stuff is the stuff that we tried to eliminate during the lockdowns and with the lockdowns and good, right? What are they doing for anybody? Mark Benioff of Salesforce pushed his way through a totally unfounded human trafficking scandal. And now his company has this amazing, super woke and inspiring Super Bowl commercial about how they're going to save the entire planet from the sun. They're going to save the entire planet from humans. Wow. Normally, the only people who are involved in trying to save the world from humans are people who want to kill humans. And it turns out that a lot of these people actually do speak in favor of lowering population. Isn't that something? And so the Super Bowl was essentially a commercial for the Great Reset and for the world where you will own nothing and like it. And they put all your favorite celebrities up there to tell you about it. They play on all your nostalgic emotions. And they say, hey, don't worry, guys. Yeah, the future might be scary if you're poor. But you're not poor, right? Remember how much fun we've all had together while you've watched me on TV? Poor people don't get to do that. You and I, we're practically friends. You're a part of the club. Don't worry. Yeah, the great reset. It just has to happen because it turns out there's too many people. And with this many people, it's just really hard to organize in societies if you give people their freedoms. And the truth is that all of you are kind of just dumb monkeys anyway. And you're going to like this better. Like you're not going to be you're going to be caged, but not like permanently caged. You're going to get to put on these goggles and you can go Anywhere you want and be anything you want. You want to be just a floating torso? Cool. You want to be like a half human, half octopus? Hey man, it's your world. It's the metaverse. It's whatever you want it to be. And the crazy thing is you'll get to, you know, interact with other people <laughs> or not people. Who knows? They might just be AIs. You could fall in love with another like, human octopus hybrid in the metaverse and they don't even need to be a real person it could just be an ai it would be so awesome you are going to love your new life as a human octopus in love with another human octopus but the thing is you can do whatever you want with this human octopus you don't even have to treat them well because it's not the real world Except the thing is, you know, if, if it is another person and that's just their avatar and you treat them really terribly, then, you know, you're going to get in trouble unless unless you've acquired enough points, unless you've got like your own ESG score high enough, unless you've said enough things that help the state, unless you are fully compliant. You know, if you do all those things, then you can get as many points as you want and then you can get away with anything. It's just like Westworld, except these robots are never going to come back and get you. I mean, (laughs) not that we know of. And the even crazier thing about the metaverse and what's happening right now is that people are saying, right, they're not actually doing this because it's not possible to do this, but they are buying real estate in the metaverse. They're buying prime real estate in the metaverse. It's an investment. Somebody else is going to want to buy it for more later. Just trust us. Is it real? No, it's not real. But it is imaginary in a way that people like. And people imagine this as just some kind of like new version of, of the Bitcoin concept. But it's not the new version of the Bitcoin concept because people actually have to agree that Bitcoin or another crypto is a currency in order to want it. And of course, the same thing can still be true in the metaverse, right? I'm not denying any of this theoretically. But people are already investing in all the good real estate there. So what's going to happen? Okay. You hate your life enough in the real world to want to spend your time in the metaverse. So you go into the metaverse and you find out you're kind of a loser there, too. That's what they're advertising. Hey, it's a little better in here. To be honest, the entire thing just sounds like they are priming everyone with some sort of hope so that they will give away all of their connections to the real world, thinking that the world beyond is going to be their paradise. The metaverse is nothing more than a materialist communist technocrats Vision of heaven. You've got to understand that. Okay. And speaking as a person who grew up without experiencing moments of faith and then studied philosophy in college and has been for much of my life just an avowed atheist, I didn't get it. Okay. I didn't experience faith. I thought everybody's stories were just stories they believed. For no real reason, and none of it made sense to me. All right. Now I can see why that outlook was always flawed. All right. And there should be no better example of that than the metaverse and the transhumanist movement. And of course, communism, because the goal of communism is to convince people that there is nothing beyond. So we must create a heaven on earth. And the way to create this perfect utopia is to use the science to tell us what's best for everyone all the time, or at least, you know, for a majority, or if not a majority, what we're going to do is we're going to steal your elections and convince you that the actual majority is in fact a small fringe minority. And instead, this rich culture that seems so glamorous and awesome and free and fun, we're going to make you envy that. And since we are the ones that actually get to live that life, we're going to tell you how to do it too. And the way you do it is by giving up all of your freedoms and submitting to the system that we put in place for you. And you can trust us because we are obviously the best. I mean, look how rich we are. So you can trust us that our plans are going to work, especially if you give us a little time. And then, you know, if they don't work, you just give us some more time because trust us. Heaven on earth is entirely possible under communism. So just stick with us and we'll get there. And people actually are signing up for that because they have. No faith in anything, including their fellow men. right? We're talking about humans who literally hate humans. And they've pulled the old switcheroo on that one, too. They realized that hating other humans doesn't sell so well with other humans. So instead, they've turned it around and said that the other people are the ones who actually hate humans. Look at those people. They want voter ID. That means they hate black people. Look at those people. They don't want drag queens reading to six-year-olds or talking about bestiality before working in government. Just for instance, crazy example. They're trying to say that all of that stuff, all of that stuff is just a factor of your hate for other people. Everything they do, all of their goals, all of it is completely anti-human. And, you know, people said I was crazy. I was insane. I was mean. I was divisive. By calling all of this exactly what it is two years ago, it's communism. It's fascism. And it's Nazism. It's a series of different variations of collectivist ideologies that are fully implemented around the world now. OK, they have been softening everyone up for decade after decade after decade. And we're actually in a weaker position now or were, I should say, than we were during World War II, And that's why this thing has advanced as far as it has. But I'm crazy for saying that. I can't say that people get mad when I say that, when I said that people get less mad now because it's talked about more openly and hey welcome to the party where were you two years ago and I get it by the way where was I 10 years ago fair enough okay everything bad I say about those people I understand to be true because I used to inhabit that mindset all right I can't say it any more times most of you who listen to the show already know that part of the reason I'm doing this is to take responsibility for having spent so much of my life in that mindset and promoting that culture I can't erase the past and I can't be perfect now, but I can try to tell people what my experience was and hope that they're able to come out of it so that we can all actually recapture human freedom and move forward in a more chaotic and potentially more dangerous, but ultimately the only possible moral future. Because the one that they have lined up for us, their heaven on earth is going to be hell on earth. It will be the end of human liberty. And if you haven't figured it out yet, I don't know what's taking you so long. You need to take seriously the most important events in your life. If you can't do that, you're not an adult. And I'm not saying that you must have the capacity to fix them all yourself. It's hard enough to fix the most important personal events in your life. All right. But we all have to focus on trying and not give up because giving up is submitting to the global communist machine. Speaking up for what is right is important. When you figure out what the right thing is, you just say it. Okay, and that's why I was saying the communist thing, and it's why I will continue to. And if people are offended, that's just fine. I don't understand what they're offended about. It's either because they feel called out that they're participating in different elements of that culture, or they're desperately clinging to that job that they're scared of losing for being honest. And hey, everybody's got to do their own thing and make their own choices. Or it could be that they are too involved with that society, the people around them. They don't want to think of those people as communists or fascists or Nazis, no matter how much they act that way. There are people out there encouraging violence against the truckers. They're having a peaceful protest. Those people might not like the cause and they might not like the protest, but it's peaceful. There's no violence. The Nazi flag and the Confederate battle flag that they found pictures of. Well, that was Justin Trudeau's photographer. In both those pictures, he set that stuff up. We have people encouraging infants to be injected with an experimental gene therapy that destroys people's hearts and immune systems. And there is nothing about what I'm saying. That's misinformation. I know it was called that eight months ago. Now it's just true. And so, all right, if you feel insulted by that, or you don't want to think of the people around you like that, keep your head in the sand. That's just fine. But this is what it is. And people have to realize it because what's going on in Canada now, Fidel Castro's bastard, Justin Snow, that's my nickname for him. Castro's bastard, Justin Snow. You can have it. He enacted their emergencies act yesterday. And even the Canadian Civil Liberties Association verified on Twitter, just so you know, put out this very brave tweet that I'm surprised Twitter didn't take down. The federal government has not met the threshold necessary to invoke the Emergencies Act. This law creates a high and clear standard for good reason. The act allows government to bypass ordinary democratic processes. This standard has not been met. The Emergencies Act can only be invoked when a situation, quote, seriously threatens the ability of the government of Canada to preserve the sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity of Canada, end quote, And when the situation, quote, cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada, end quote, governments regularly deal with difficult situations and doing so using powers granted to them by democratically elected representatives, emergency legislation should not be normalized. It threatens our democracy and our civil liberties. And of course, that's obviously correct. Justin Trudeau's finance minister Christia Friedland, who was, I remember from being a frequent guest on Bill Maher, she's spoken with and interviewed George Soros. In fact, she's a young global leader at the World Economic Forum. Well, she basically announced that Canada now has the right to seize everybody's assets if they're involved. She can stop payments, donations to the truckers. And Mike Lindell was just debanked by an American bank yesterday. Heartland Financial, by the way, in case you want to know who not to bank with. But what's next? Are they going to bring out the military? I just read a headline a little bit ago. I haven't gone into it yet, but it seems that the Ottawa chief of police has resigned, probably as a product of not wanting to carry out the illegal orders he's been tasked with carrying out to tamp down a peaceful protest. They are trying to call the truckers economic terrorists. What can you do to populations once you begin to call them terrorists? Well, you can seize all their money. You're welcome to bomb them. Of course, detain them. It's actually irresponsible not to detain them. That's what we heard throughout the first two decades of this century vis-a-vis Afghanistan. And I'm not in favor of arguing for the Taliban or anything like that. I'm just saying we got very scared of terrorists. We gave the government all these extra powers and it turns out that they can turn right around and use them on their own citizens if they want, because we gave it to them, because we weren't paying attention, because we were busy thinking about Democrats and Republicans while the Uniparty was shoving communism down our throats. And obviously, I hope, as everyone else hopes, who's not a Nazi or a fascist or a communist, which. You know, there's a lot of those in Canada. There's a lot of them in the United States. There's a lot of them everywhere, frankly. But we all want to see the truckers hold their line. We want to see Justin Trudeau waive all of the coronavirus mitigations and restrictions that obviously don't work and don't do anything other than attempt to control the population of supposedly free people. And we would like to see their demands met with no further violence, so that they can go home and get back to their families and get back to work. That's what everybody should want. But no, but no, because the commies and Nazis and fascists are still focused on the science. They have to put out the science. The people must follow the science. If they don't follow the science on coronavirus, then they won't follow the science on climate change, or sustainability, or the green agenda, or the depopulation agenda. Because the science says it's a lot better if you start eating insects. That is what the science says. That's what the science these people put out says. Do you follow it or not? And these commies should be asked those kinds of questions. When is it okay for you to stop following the science? And if there's no point where it's okay for you to stop following the science, then perhaps you have adopted the religion of materialism, of communism. And when do all these useful idiots in Hollywood begin to think about this? Hey, I know you're advertising a certain lifestyle and a certain future, but isn't it awfully strange that you have multiple multi-million dollar homes that you can just travel to whenever you like. Oh, you want to get out of the city because of the riots? Oh, go out to your country home. It's so much safer out there. Well, what happens when the science says you own too much property and that your country home would actually be much better off as farmland so that you can help feed the world's population? What then, commie? But no, forget about that. Promises have been made. You are definitely in the club for a while until you do something the club is upset about. Like, for instance, being a white man. You can get away with it for a little while, but you're not going to be able to stay in the club forever because ultimately the club is kind of dominated by Han Chinese and they're actually even more racist than you are, Kami. But good luck with all of it. Let's consider a historical precedent for what Castro's bastard, Justin Snow, is doing right now. And they've kind of prefaced this by using January 6th, the very violent insurrection, as their model. And we know what January 6th was. It was the United States branch of the global communist world orders Reichstag fire. And if you're unfamiliar with the Reichstag fire, this is from history dot com. Very mainstream history. This is the approved for everyone history. A few hours after the Reichstag fire, as Nazi propaganda spread fears of a communist revolt, Hitler convinced Hindenburg to invoke Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution, which gave the president dictatorial powers and allowed him to make laws for all of Germany's territorial states. Hitler and the cabinet quickly drew up a more permanent and expansive decree for the protection of the people and the state, known as the Reichstag fire decree, which suspended the rights to assembly, freedom of the press, freedom of speech and other constitutional protections within Germany. The decree also removed all restraints on police investigations, allowing the Nazis to arrest and jail their political opponents indiscriminately that night. The stormtroopers rounded up some 4,000 people, many of whom were tortured as well as imprisoned. And the takeaway of the Reichstag fire was that Hitler used an event to seize all of the powers of government for himself. That is exactly what Castro's bastard, Justin Snow, is doing up north. And Trudeau is one of the World Economic Forum's young global leaders. He is fully invested in the cause. He has championed Chinese-style dictatorships in the past. You know, the benevolent dictator. Everybody loves the benevolent dictator. They can just come in and fix everything all at once. And you can know they're benevolent because they look the right way and they say all of the right things. They just want sustainability. They want a better environment. They're male feminists. So trust them while they figure out the entire world for you based on the science. But yet people are still afraid to call it what it is. We have Hillary Clinton's campaign with the knowledge of Obama and Biden spying on the campaign of their political opponent, then during the transition and then while he was president. And we think, oh, no big deal. They're censoring every American who disagrees with them. They're debanking people. And in Canada, now they've seized full government powers. What happens if Justin Trudeau's grasp on that power is threatened further? And there are already the premiers of the different Canadian provinces saying they do not want to go along with any of that. But he doesn't care. What happens when he brings the military out? Well, we can hope they wouldn't go along with it. But what if they do? When does Trudeau give up his power? And if he doesn't, When does it become okay to state the clear truth that he is now a communist dictator? The history books in the future will say that Trudeau was elected. He won an election. He was the people's choice for who to put in power. So it's not so bad that he stole it because it was really what the society wanted. And we're told the same thing about Hitler. So he can't be a dictator because he was elected. And they can't just steal elections. So it really is what the people wanted. So, yeah, it's fine. But don't worry, commies. No one is ever going to hold it against you that you supported all of this stuff. Every little bit of it. And when you found out that all of this stuff was happening and going wrong and obviously violating basic human rights, everybody will just believe you when you say, that the other side was all misinformation. Everyone's going to believe you and you're going to be just fine. You're going to live out the rest of your days. Everyone will know that you are the hero you imagined yourself to be because you told the truth about all those evil truckers. Hallelujah. Now, returning to the corporate media, James O'Keefe put up a really interesting video on Project Veritas's page on Telegram the other day, and the video is of a New York Times reporter being deposed in Sarah Palin's case. The video is about five minutes long, and most of it is focused on the particular piece and how it got published and what sorts of fact-checking processes it went through, etc. But there's one very, very interesting part of that video, and I want to play you just that part. You can see the rest of it on Telegram if you so choose. Go to Project Veritas's page or go to the info stream t.me slash I'm your moderator.
1: If you were trying to verify a fact through news stories, would you look for news stories in the Times first? Objectional point. Um not necessarily. Um, I would (laughs) consider it a a good source, but I mean, I often would be checking um, Washington Post. Sometimes it's just about you Google something and it was whichever um, established source would come up first.
0: So that's The New York Times' Linda cohn Osman testifying in her deposition for the trial between The New York Times and Sarah Palin. And if you heard what she said right there, right, what she does to verify that the things she's saying are true is first, she goes to the paper that she works for. She considers that a good source. Sometimes she'll check the Washington Post owned by Amazon, by the way. Sometimes she will go to Google, the site that gives you the information It wants you to see the Google search engine doesn't work as a search engine. It only works to continue to push a narrative while people think that they're actually doing research. If you can only get certain points of view in your research, then what you're doing is very bad research. If you work as a professional journalist for the paper of record and you're not aware of that then you're very, very bad at your job. And she would go to Google, look something up, and take the first established source, meaning the first source she sees that is approved of by people like her, and if that source said what she wanted it to say, then she would continue on, feeling like she had successfully completed her research. That is a professional writer At the New York Times, who then passes what she writes through multiple levels of editing and checks and whatever else before her article goes out. This is the acceptable standard of research for a mainstream media outlet. She's recycling information that the algorithm has already manipulated by driving it up to the top of the search results. And then she's just accepting the narrative and repeating the narrative. And she is in the class of what we imagine are elite intellectuals. These are the sorts of people that those in the party of false decorum would think. Well, hey, you know, I don't know if I agree with everything she says, but she certainly has a very informed and relevant point of view just based on the position she's in with an organization like that. But it turns out that she actually researches on par with an eighth grade report. The Google search algorithm has probably convinced more very stupid people that they are actually very smart than anything. It also takes people who were smart and makes them stupid by continuously feeding them only bad information all the time. And I imagine that that's what's happened to Linda Cohn, although I don't know her work well enough. She might just be a total incompetent. That's 100% possible. But you have to understand that this is the level of professionalism and expertise on display at the, the old gray lady, the paper of record, all the news that's fit to print. So when you have a bunch of deranged commies coming at you, asking you for your sources, first off, they're not going to read your sources, okay? They just want to hear names that they already associate with bad source so that they can reject what you're saying out of hand. Your sources can be perfect. They can be literally the source material, witness testimony, lawsuits, scientific papers, person-to-person information, all of that, the sorts of information that actual intelligence agencies try to consume all of so that they can figure out what's right. But the commies will dismiss that because the New York Times said something different to them and they're not going to read your sources. You could send them 50 sources. They're not going to read them. And even if they did read them, they would not spend their time figuring out whether or not you're wrong and how to prove you wrong. They would spend their time figuring out how they could denigrate each and every one of your sources, or the people that supplied the sources, or if that doesn't work, you. So you're probably better off not having the sources conversation with them at all, but you could also just send them this video and be like, hey, does it sound like that person really cares about their sources? And the crazy thing is the person you'll be talking to would rather be wrong By repeating what the New York Times says, then be right by doing their own thinking, because they've been told not to trust any of their own thoughts. Everything they say and think has to be approved of by a higher authority. And that authority has to be respected by the party of false decorum for them to remain in it. If they start going against all of those stories, all of the slogans, then they'll be removed from the party of false decorum and their life of achievement based on climbing the rungs of a social ladder based on them impressing and complying with the needs of those higher up on the ladder. Well, that'll all be washed away and they'll have to start back from the beginning. And that right there is the part that none of them want to have to do. And they won't engage that process until all of this affects them in such a negative way that they have no choice but to finally relent to reality. And here's a reality that they will not want to relent to the spying thing. The media is now beginning to address that it actually is a thing. And the way they're addressing it, of course, is by making it seem like stuff we already knew, stuff that doesn't really matter. And and this is amazing. Stuff that is actually too complicated for their readers to understand or follow. So we're not going to burden you with having to think about all of this. We're just going to tell you it's okay, and then we'll just move on. This is from The New York Times today. I'm just going to read a little piece of this. The headline is court filing started a furor in right wing outlets, but their narrative is off track. When John H. Durham, the Trump era special counsel investigating the inquiry into Russia's 2016 election interference, filed a pretrial motion on Friday night, he slipped in a few extra sentences that set off a furor among right wing outlets about purported spying on former President Donald J. Trump. But the entire narrative appeared to be mostly wrong or old news. The latest example of the challenge created by a barrage of similar conspiracy theories from Mr. Trump and his allies upon close inspection. These narratives are often based on a misleading presentation of the facts or outright misinformation. They also tend to involve dense and obscure issues, so dissecting them requires asking readers to expend significant mental energy and time, raising the question of whether news outlets should even cover such claims. Yet Trump allies portray the news media as engaged in a cover-up if they don't. And that is communist blogger Charlie Savage writing for The New York Times, Look at the absolute disdain they have for their readers. They believe it is their job to tell their readers exactly what to think about everything. And if the details of what's actually happening in reality might lead those people to believe some unapproved conclusion, then they won't tell you at all because it's going to take too much mental energy on your part to actually understand any of it. So just trust us. And as I said yesterday, they're just going to continue to leave their audience in the dark for weeks. They've done it for three, four days now. And now they're in the phase where they try to tell everyone that what's happening is that These people on the right are just freaking out because they finally think that they've got us. They finally caught us in a lie. They're all freaking out over this nonsense. They gave Fox News and other media outlets, most of them truly on the right, but, you know, not people like Glenn Greenwald. Is he part of the vast right wing conspiracy now? But rather than responding immediately, they gave it a little space So that everybody on one side would make a big deal out of this thing. All of their readers would be like, why are the bad people making such a big deal of this? And then they write articles telling all of them, hey, don't worry about it. It's just those crazy people freaking out. We're talking about actual treason here. And we have this 10 or 15 or 20 percent or maybe 25 percent, but I kind of doubt it of the country who's being told that these people are just crazy talking about treason and you know they're crazy that's how you can know it's not treason and we're not going to tell you what it actually is because honestly it's not worth your time and all of these people imagine themselves to be highly informed by always referring to sources that tell them explicitly that it might be bad form for them to share the real details of what's happening. But since we do care about details, let's hear some more of them. Cash Patel had a great appearance on the Charlie Kirk show last night, and I'm hoping to get him back on this podcast soon, but have a little taste of this. Who says you could build a back-end access to White House Internet activity? How's that possible? Well, let's,
1: let's have some fun now that I'm finally out of government. And since I haven't been around the intelligence, I, they can't accuse me of disclosing classified intelligence. But what I'll tell you is my take. In the Durham pleading, he wrote that there was a sensitive arrangement, quote-unquote, um, that allowed those tech guys that the Democrats and Hillary Clinton and Jake Sullivan hired to gain access to the White House. So the only way that happens, Charlie, the only way on planet Earth that happens, in my estimation, is if you have an arrangement with the NSA.
0: Oh, so you think the NSA was working with these tech contractors to build an encrypted tunnel or not a tunnel so you could look at Internet access of the EOP. Is that right?
1: So in my in my experience, and since I haven't been around the intel and I'm, I'm, I'm giving you my estimation, there's no other sensitive arrangement you could make to get access to the most secure servers on planet Earth unless you're talking to the intelligence community, i.e. the NSA.
0: So the NSA allegedly willingly built a leaking operation of what websites the White House was visiting via these tech workers. So how did the tech workers come into play here? They were just the middlemen? No. So what
1: happens generally is the tech these they become contractors. So they go to the NSA and they form some sort of arrangement, like we do all the time with private companies, and we say we are going to hire we the NSA the intelligence community are going to hire you the tech workers to do X, Y, and Z. Or the tech workers approach them and said, "We want a contract for you, um, and this is the effort that we want to undertake with you." And that's the only way in. There's no other way in. There's no other sensitive or agreement arrangement, excuse me, to use John Durham's words, that allows you access to those servers. It just doesn't exist.
0: So we have the NSA as the government agency with the special arrangement to allow the spying on the president, and it had to be approved of by a president. Which president would that be? Jaffe's lawyers put out a statement today to NBC News, contrary to the allegations in this recent filing, Mr. Jaffe is an apolitical Internet security expert with decades of service to the U.S. government who has never worked for a political party and who legally provided access to DNS data obtained from a private client that separately was providing DNS services to the executive office of the president. And I wonder if that will actually be a legitimate defense. Yes, I was spying on the president of the United States, but it's only because another president already asked me to. But hey, if Rodney Jaffe wants to throw Obama under the bus, cool. Now, this is an interesting piece of the story from the Washington Free Beacon today. The headline Biden had firm at center of Trump hacking scandal on campaign payroll. And this is Chuck Ross writing for the Washington Free Beacon. The Biden campaign paid nearly twenty thousand dollars to a cybersecurity firm at the center of special counsel John Durham's investigation into the origins of the Trump Russia probe. The campaign paid new star or maybe it's Noistar. Information services in 2020 for accounting and compliance work, according to federal election commission records. According to Durham, NoiStar's chief technology officer, Rodney Jaffe, accessed sensitive web traffic data that the company maintained on behalf of the White House executive office in order to collect derogatory information about Donald Trump. Jaffe allegedly provided the information to Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman, who in turn gave it to the CIA during a meeting in February 2017. Durham charged Sussman in September with lying to the FBI about his investigation of Trump. The Biden campaign's payments raise questions about whether Jaffe continued snooping on Trump in the most recent election. The Biden and Clinton campaigns are the only two presidential committees to have ever paid Noistar, according to Federal Election Commission records. Biden's campaign paid Noistar $18,819 on September 29th, 2020. The records show. The Clinton campaign paid the firm $3,000 in May 2015 for mobile phone services. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee paid $3,000 to Noistar in 2017. Noistar executives and staffers contributed $17,906 to Biden's campaign, FEC records show. It is unclear what Noistar executives knew of Jaffe's activities on behalf of the Clinton campaign. Durham alleges that Jaffe and his associates mined the White House traffic data for the purpose of gathering derogatory information about Donald Trump. Jaffe, who retired from Noistar in September, allegedly told associates that he was investigating Trump in order to please VIPs on the Clinton campaign. He also allegedly wanted a job in the Hillary Clinton administration. Jaffe and Noistar have not been named in court filings for the Sussman case, but Jaffe's attorneys have confirmed his involvement in the matter to news outlets. Joffe has not been charged with wrongdoing. Noistar and Joffe's lawyer did not respond to requests for comment. The White House referred the Washington Free Beacon to the Democrat National Committee for comment. The organization did not respond. And yesterday, Jen Psaki had her substitute spokescommy doing the briefing in the press room. And when asked about this subject, she said that the White House would refer them to the Department of Justice. So the White House, the Biden fake White House has no comment whatsoever on the very clear proof that Hillary Clinton's campaign was paying outside actors to spy on Donald Trump's campaign under the approval of the Obama-Biden administration. And here, commies, I'll throw you a bone, allegedly, okay? But it's not alleged that Obama and Biden both knew about all of this. They knew, that the Russian collusion thing and the Steele dossier were a hoax from July 2016 on, at least. They carried that secret throughout the rest of the campaign, hoping that it would damage Donald Trump. And then they allowed the Russian collusion investigation, the Mueller investigation, to go forward. And of course, Joe Biden allowed the first fake impeachment to go forward to cover up what he and his son were doing in Ukraine. All of that in what Trump called the other day a stronger time in our country, all of that is treason. You can call it, oh, that's just dirty politics. No, it's not. They were undermining the commander in chief of the United States of America. And you are more than welcome to say to me that that is what I'm doing by saying this stuff about Joe Biden. But a not true because I'm not the entirety of the mass news media. I'm not big tech. I'm not the universities and the think tanks and the uh, military industrial complex and the intel community and the FBI. All right. I'm just not. I'm one guy analyzing the news as best I can. So no comparison there. Also, here's the thing. Joe Biden didn't win. And we're going to find that out. Donald Trump did win. That is a major difference. If we're not able to say an illegitimate administration is illegitimate, then we're in a communist dictatorship like Canada. And the article goes on, but a lot of it is background stuff. So if you'd like to read the rest of it, you can go to the Washington Free Beacon. Now, Michael Sussman's attorneys at Latham and Watkins have filed a response to this latest Durham filing. And I'm going to share it with you because that's better than listening to the Washington Post or CNN or the New York Times try to tell you why none of this matters and you should just simply ignore it. So this is the response. Defendant Michael A. Sussman, by and through his undersigned counsel, submits this response to the special counsel's motion to inquire into potential conflicts of interest. And that's what the motion was. All right. The special counsel was arguing that Michael Sussman's attorney's could be involved in some way or their clients could be involved in some way in the rest of this larger criminal proceeding that he's conducting. Counsel for Mr. Sussman previously advised the special counsel that Mr. Sussman has been fully apprised of the issues that the special counsel sought to raise. He understood his right to consult independent counsel, and he intended to waive any potential conflicts of interest to the extent that the special counsel intended to bring potential conflicts of interest to the court's attention and request that Mr. Sussman waive those issues on the record. Mr. Sussman does not oppose the motion. Unfortunately, the special counsel has done more than simply file a document identifying potential conflicts of interest. Rather, the special counsel has again made a filing in this case that unnecessarily includes prejudicial and false allegations that are irrelevant to his motion and to the charged offense and are plainly intended to politicize this case, inflame media coverage and taint the jury pool. In his motion, the special counsel included approximately three pages of purported factual background. Approximately half of this factual background provocatively and misleadingly describes for the first time, and that's them in italics domain name system traffic potentially associated with former president Donald Trump, including data at the executive office of the president that was allegedly presented to agency two in February 2017. These allegations were not included in the indictment. These allegations post-date the single false statement that was charged in the indictment. And these allegations were not necessary to identify any of the potential conflicts of interest with which the motion is putatively concerned. Why then include them? The question answers itself. You got that? Michael Sussman's lawyers are suggesting a conspiracy theory that John Durham is intending to improperly put this situation into the court of public opinion rather than going through the proper legal processes. You might note that John Durham's investigation has not leaked anything for the years it has been ongoing and that no one involved in the investigation has been on television on the cable channels talking about all of it and trying to make it political. Consider that In light of what you witnessed with the Mueller report, this is the angle Sussman's attorneys are going for. Sadly, the special counsel seems to be succeeding in his effort to instigate unfair and prejudicial media coverage of Mr. Sussman's case. Indeed, since the motion was filed, numerous outlets published stories suggesting that the special counsel's latest filing revealed a vast conspiracy involving Mr. Sussman and the Clinton campaign. And they list some examples of articles on that. Worse still, Mr. Trump seized upon the special counsel's filing, stating that it, quote, provides indisputable evidence that my campaign and presidency were spied on by operatives paid by the Hillary Clinton campaign in an effort to develop a completely fabricated connection to Russia. End quote. He went on to call this scandal, quote, far greater in scope and magnitude than Watergate. End quote. Said that, quote, in a stronger period of time in our country, this crime would have been punishable by death and demanded reparations. And they cite some sources there as well. And this is not the first time in this case that the special counsel has sought to include allegations about uncharged conduct in public filings and done so using inflammatory and prejudicial rhetoric. Take, for example, the very indictment that the special counsel filed in this single count false statement case. The indictment is 27 pages long and reads as though there was a vast conspiracy involving the Clinton campaign and Mr. Sussman to defraud the FBI into investigating Donald Trump as part of an October surprise. But the indictment does not charge anyone other than Mr. Sussman. The indictment does not charge a conspiracy and the indictment does not even charge a fraud. So basically, Michael Sussman's attorneys are calling John Durham a conspiracy theorist. And they are upset that the broader story is now out there. They wanted Sussman just to be charged for the one little thing and have the rest of it not in there. So no one would understand that there actually is a vast conspiracy and it does go all the way up To Barack Obama. To make this case a partisan affair and to inflame media coverage, the special counsel chose to include allegations that Mr. Sussman was part of a wide ranging scheme involving a number of uncharged parties, including the Clinton campaign, law firm one, campaign lawyer one, a U.S. investigative firm, tech executive one, and a number of computer data researchers who all worked together to unfairly influence the 2016 election. In doing so, the special counsel featured grossly misleading excerpts of emails among tech executive one and other researchers omitting statements that showed the researchers agreed with the findings and otherwise operated in good faith. And again, just trust them. Tellingly, however, the special counsel has never alleged in the indictment or subsequently that the data provided by the researchers was manipulated or fabricated, or that Mr. Sussman had any reason to believe that the allegations he presented to the FBI's general counsel were untrue or misleading in any way. Well, okay, why did he lie about them then? More recently, in his 19-page discovery update filed on January 25th, 2022, the special counsel again went out of his way to include uncharged and inflammatory allegations in his filing, which sought an extension of time to produce certain discovery. Oh, he's very late and very inefficient. Everybody always says that about John Durham. The special counsel stretched to include the gratuitous claim that his office had an active, ongoing criminal investigation of the defendant's conduct and other matters. Oh, yes. So gratuitous. However, the special counsel has been investigating for years, and some of the special counsel's Ongoing, in quotes, investigation seems to be work that should have been completed before indicting Mr. Sussman. <gasps> ah! <laughs> sure thing, guys. Sure thing. For example, the special counsel has alleged that Mr. Sussman met with the FBI on behalf of the Clinton campaign, but it was not until November 2021, two months after Mr. Sussman was indicted, that the special counsel bothered to interview any individual who worked full time for that campaign to determine if that allegation was true. It is not. You got that? So they didn't go right to the Clinton campaign because they were actually implementing a strategy in their investigation. They just went there at the last second so that they could imply that Mr. Sussman was somehow involved. Given the special counsel's pattern of including unnecessary prejudicial material in public filings, there can be no doubt that the superfluous factual background in the special counsel's motion is intended to further politicize this case, inflame media coverage and taint the jury pool. Because no right ranks higher than the right of the accused to a fair trial in cases that arouse intense public interest, adverse publicity can endanger the ability of the defendant to receive a fair trial. And they're citing United States versus Duran in just in support of the idea that Mr. Sussman's jury pool is being tainted by these filings. And then they cite Patton versus Yount. Adverse pretrial publicity can create a presumption of prejudice in a community. Oh, no. As a result, Mr. Sussman hereby requests that the court strike the factual background portion of the special counsel's motion pursuant to the court's inherent power to, quote, fashion an appropriate sanction for conduct which abuses the judicial process. So they're seeking sanctions against Durham. In addition, Mr. Sussman reserves all rights to submit appropriate motions and seek appropriate relief concerning this conduct should the indictment not be dismissed and should the case proceed to trial, including by seeking extensive voir dire about potential jurors exposure to prejudicial media resulting from the special counsel's irresponsible actions. So basically, they're just whining and they're going to say that they are going to exclude every possible juror, which would make the trial more difficult. Therefore, you just have to do whatever they say. And here's the conclusion. For the reasons set forth above, Mr. Sussman respectfully requests that the court allow him to proceed with his current counsel of choice, Latham and Watkins, following his waiver of any potential conflicts of interest and strike the factual background portion of the motion. And this is very likely going nowhere for Sussman's attorneys because Durham has what he needs to go forward and they have the proof of the conflicts of interest as well. If you want more information on that, Cash Patel has a thing called Cash's Corner that he does with Yanya Kalik on the Epic Times. There's an episode he did a couple of weeks ago that goes through all of this stuff and basically previews what this filing turned out to be. And Cash gives a lengthy discussion on the machinations of the conflict of interest thing with attorneys like Latham and Watkins, whose clients could be involved in other parts of the broader investigation. And I don't know, but I would think that this is actually going to put Latham and Watkins in a pretty bad position. They just basically used the conspiracy theory defense in a court of law knowing or at least they should be knowing that Durham actually does have a larger conspiracy. They have to know. And so what are they doing? I mean, intentionally or unintentionally, they might be forcing Durham to push more details about the broader conspiracy out to the public. And if that's the case, I mean, I guess I'll gladly welcome that and we can take it from there. But if Latham and Watkins gets removed, that would also kind of show the same thing. That they would have had clients at some point who are involved in the broader investigation of what was an actual conspiracy. Watergate times a thousand legitimately. This seems like a pretty long shot for Sussman's lawyers with a lot of potential downside. And so I was doing a little background on this stuff. I wanted to know a little bit about who Sussman's lawyers were. And and it turns out there's a pretty great thread of research by a man who goes by, or it could be a woman, I suppose, Dawson S. Field, like Dawson's Field on Twitter. Who are the attorneys that Michael Sussman has gathered for his defense? This is from last fall, by the way. Three have filed appearances with the court, Natalie Hardwick, Rao, Michael Bosworth, and Sean Berkowitz, all from Latham and Watkins. Natalie Hardwick Rao started with the CIA for two years as a military analyst after graduating from Duke, then attended law school and has been an associate with Latham and Watkins since 2010. Michael Bosworth joined Latham and Watkins as a partner in July 2020, clerked for a federal district judge, appeals court judge, and a Supreme Court justice also spent a lot of time at SDNY with the DOJ. The Supreme Court justice he clerked for was Stephen Breyer. And the district judge he clerked for was Jed Rakoff, who just dismissed the Sarah Palin versus New York Times case. And of course, she's going to appeal. But very interesting connections. Then it gets interesting, he says. I think it's already interesting. Seven months as special counsel to FBI Director Comey. That's Michael Bosworth of Latham and Watkins, who's representing Sussman. He was seven months as special counsel to Director Comey. So when we're talking about conflicts of interest in this particular case, it's hard to find a bigger one than that. But oh, wait, here's one followed by two and a half years As a deputy counsel to President Obama, followed by seven months at NYU law and into private practice, the NYU appointment is interesting because three Obama officials joined the staff that spring, Michael Bosworth, Lisa Monaco, who is the current deputy attorney general and Preet Bharara, who is about as big a Russian collusion hoaxer as you could possibly imagine. Back to the thread here. Interesting group going to NYU. Also interesting because I found a strange FOIA request from a lawyer at NYU's Brennan Center. We talk about the Brennan Center all the time. A FOIA request on 41817 to DISA, the Defense Information Systems Agency, for records related to SCIFs at Trump Tower and Mar-a-Lago. DISA runs all US classified computer networks. And then Sean Berkowitz used to work in the DOJ office for the Northern District of Illinois, covering the Chicago Swamp. He also worked the Enron case with Lisa Monaco, Catherine Rumler, and Andrew Weissman. Then after he retired from the DOJ following his work on the Mueller special counsel team, Andrew Weissman also joined NYU. So you can see why they want to keep it all in-house. And then finally, I know this is going long, but I want to get this story in front of you today. This is from Just the News. Criticism mounts as 55 federal agencies track COVID vaccine religious exemption requests. Isn't that great? The communist state will know everything about everyone, and they have to because that's how you make the world a better place. Fifty five federal agencies have issued rule changes to track employees and others who request religious exemptions for the covid-19 vaccine. Critics of the tracking say the practice is discriminatory against people of faith. Members of Congress are also weighing in, asking President Joe Biden to halt religious exemption tracking policies. One lawmaker introduced legislation to prohibit the practice. The federal government has no business to create a database of people who file religious exemptions. Liberty Council's founder and chairman, Matt Staver, told the center square last month after it was initially reported that one federal agency was logging the exemption requests. The only possible purpose this could have is to first identify and then to discriminate against people of faith. Knowing who files for religious exemptions serves no legitimate or lawful purpose. Now that 55 agencies are tracking religious exemption requests, Staver compared it to a database used by Nazi Germany to track people of the Jewish faith. This database is what enabled Nazis to round up those targeted for ghettos and concentration camps, he said. The federal government has started its own database on Americans of faith. We cannot allow this to happen. We cannot allow a federal database categorizing people by their religion or medical status. What possible good can be accomplished by these government lists? I cannot think of one. And the article goes on, by all means, read it, but just understand that this is what's happening. There is a reason for why they're doing this. And it's all completely out in the open. Years ago, this would have been a national scandal because people used to care about their privacy and their personal information, and they used to not like being on lists. Now everybody's just like, yeah, well, you know, that's just how things are. We're all on a list somewhere. What can you do about it? I guess we're just going to, I don't know, keep watching halftime shows and hope for the best. And then, of course, me, I'm like, uh, hey, uh, that's actually communism. And you should be a little worried about what they're doing. The state is trying to control your life. You can see that, right? And they actually think that all the people who are upset about the erosion of basic civil liberties and human rights are running around screaming that the sky is falling. And I talked about this, man, must have been like summer 2020 when people were first going crazy about the masks and all of this stuff, right? There are different ways that people can react to situations, right? You can accept that there is this danger and obey all the rules forever, right? You can accept initially that there is the danger and then realize that the danger isn't what it was and then sensibly let go of the rules and the mitigations that obviously don't work. You can think that the danger is not serious at the beginning, come to find out that it is, and then take care of the situation. Or you can think that the situation isn't dangerous at the beginning, decide that that's your position forever, and just go on like that forever. Now, in the mask situation, in regards to covid By the time that was all going on, there was more than adequate information to understand that COVID was not nearly the threat they were implying it was and that masks didn't work. So believing that it was a threat initially, there might be some sense behind that, but it quickly became obvious that that wasn't correct, right? So at the beginning, it is a matter of how tuned in you are and how much tolerance for risk you have and where on the line you are of being willing to sacrifice freedom for a sense of security, right? People are tuned differently, that's okay. It's not only about the initial response, it's about how you respond with more information down the line, right? So if we're, in, if we're on safari in Africa and we have our camp and I go out somewhere on my own and I see a tiger, And that tiger snarls at me and it looks like it's going to chase after me. And so I slink away and then I sprint back to the camp and I say, holy shit, there's a tiger and it could be coming our way. A normal group of people in that camp would think about what they have to fend off tigers. Maybe they've got guns. Maybe they got a very fancy tiger trap and they'd be like, don't worry, we got this. right?" Or maybe everybody's like, okay, well, we didn't sign up for that. Let's pack our things. We need to get out of here. It's just not worth it. You know, tigers could really mess us up. But it would be a very stupid response if you knew me, right? Or if it was not me and it was some other friend and we all knew that person to completely discount what they said and say, oh, well, you know, I haven't seen a tiger. That doesn't sound right. I'm just going to just going to hang out. We're not going to worry about that. That would be a very, very bad response. Okay, and that's the situation we're in right now that everybody else in the group is like, well, did you get any of his tiger hairs? And you're like, "Uh, no, why would I go that close to the tiger? Like you want me to bring back orange and black hairs so that, you know, it's a tiger. Well, did you get any of his teeth? How many teeth did he have? Like, I don't know how many teeth tigers have. I saw four really sharp ones. They're like, yeah. That doesn't sound like a tiger to me. I mean, okay, you know, and then I take off sprinting and I never talk to any of those people again because they're obviously all insane and they all want to be fact guys. Oh, you got to prove it to me. You got to prove it beyond any shadow of a doubt before I'm going to believe that that thing that wants to destroy me actually might destroy me. Go with that, commies. Good luck. All right. But now you see where we are two years down the line and we have Justin Trudeau. We have government or agencies tracking everything we do and getting more information all the time, debanking people, censoring people, trying to inject people with experimental gene therapies. And we've got Fidel Castro's bastard son stealing dictatorial power in Canada while the rest of the world looks on. And we've got this 15 to 20 percent of people still totally addicted to the central narrative, totally asleep, hoping that this. This upset in the world will just all end and everything will go back to like it was before saying, yeah, well, you know, those truckers are preventing a lot of economic activity. They're going to cost people their jobs. People might not be able to make it to the hospital. The very, very, very same people who didn't care about any of those excuses when it came to COVID lockdowns. And all those very same things were happening on a scale a million times larger. They did not bat an eye. They just kept repeating the slogans. This is how what's happening in Canada happens. And what happens in Canada is going to affect the rest of the world because it's all the same machine. Justin Trudeau is one small piece. He is one leader in one country whose citizens have finally had enough and stood up for themselves. If he takes over in that country, more countries around the world will do the same thing. And you know who they'll call in in case there's a problem? Oh, the Chinese military in the UN. And what are they there to help do? Oh, they're going to help restore proper government functioning under illegitimate regimes because they're all aligned with the same cause. But yeah, you're right. I'm scared of things that will never happen. The funny thing is, I'm actually not even scared. I have full faith that we're going to avoid all this stuff because people need to wake up and confront it for what it really is. And that's how I've approached this entire thing. And I know you guys know this, but it just stands in such stark contrast to this attitude that none of this is actually really happening because the TV hasn't told them yet. And because the New York times says it's actually too complicated for them to understand. They just accept it like the very, very good Germans. They are. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, download the Telegram Messenger app and go to t.me slash I'm your moderator. I'm on Gab, Getter, Rumble, and Bitchute at Moderator. You can find my writing at imyourmoderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcotour.com, or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the show financially, there is a crypto wallet address in the episode description or go to ko-fi.com slash imyourmoderator. ko-fi.com slash imyourmoderator. And I'll see you again soon, out on the rain. It's noon! In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that